Thank you very much. You might expect this is going to be a massive gear change, but I actually don't think it is. What we're going to find today from the book of Leviticus, and I'll give you another end of the preach, basically, the book of Leviticus is going to show us that God wants us, that God's heart's desire is for you and I to be in a relationship with him, and for the many hundreds and thousands and millions of people in our nation and across the globe who have crazy ideas of what God is like, actually, and believe total lies of what he's like, to actually know he's the God who made them and who loves them, who wants them, who wants the kind of intimate communion we were just seeking with him, who wants to live in them and dwell with them. So this might feel like it's going to be a gear change, but I don't believe it is. I believe actually what the book of Leviticus is going to show us very much ties up with what Dave was just so helpfully led us in as God's been speaking to us. And this is a series I will confess I'm very excited about. It took a little bit of persuading to, uh, with some people to get, it to, uh, get to this point, but I'm very excited because I love Leviticus, and I'm excited for us to delve into this book together. But I know that as we start talking about this, there'll be very mixed feelings across the room. Some people may be thinking, what is Leviticus? Is that a book of the Bible? It's not as well-known a book, so maybe it's not really heard of it, don't know anything about it. But if you do know about the book of Leviticus, you may be thinking, oh my, Andrew has finally lost it. We all thought that one day it would happen, but he has already completely lost it. How can he love the book of Leviticus? Because if you know anything about this book, you'll know it has a really bad reputation. You might be thinking, I wonder if he'll notice if I sneak out now. Would anyone actually notice? And I know that some of you are thinking that, because today I can actually see your faces for the first time in ages, which is lovely. And in some ways, that is an understandable reaction, because Leviticus has this terrible reputation as being a book that is just boring and repetitive and old, full of old weird laws and detailed instructions for very peculiar practices. It talks about blood and skin diseases and mold and bodily fluids and more blood. There's an awful lot of blood in this book and weird things like killing animals and throwing their blood on people. My favorite, or one of my favorite moments in Leviticus, my favorite oddity in Leviticus comes in chapter 14. There's a ceremony where you take two birds you kill one bird, and you pour its blood into an earthenware pot with water and kind of mix it up. You take the other bird, still alive, and you stick it in the pot of water and blood, and you use the live bird to splash this mixture on someone who's being healed from a disease, and then you kind of send off the bird to get released. To us, that just seems odd. This feels like reading something from the horrible histories. you familiar with that book series and that's a TV series as well, where they try and draw out the weirdest and most kind of unpleasant and odd bits of history to make it exciting for kids. Leviticus is like the horrible histories of the Bible. I said, why do I love it so much? Why am I so excited that we're going to look at it together over the summer? It's because I believe Leviticus is the hidden gem or a hidden gem in the Bible. We so easily think of it as odd, insignificant, worthless, like this artifact that's been dug up from the desert that's completely pointless. But actually, it's more like one of those moments on the Antiques Roadshow, classic Sunday evening TV show, where this thing that seems odd and worthless and useless actually turns out to be special and purposeful and of huge value. And the book of Leviticus is of huge value for us today because it's hugely relevant to us today. It might surprise you, but the book of Leviticus is hugely relevant to you and I today. How can that be? How can an odd book written for a group of people living in a desert 3,000 years ago be relevant to you and I living today in Hastings? Because Leviticus is written to answer a question that is relevant. It's written to answer a question relevant then, 
a question relevant now, a question relevant to every human being. The key question Leviticus is answering is how can imperfect people live with a perfect God? Or to put it in the language of Leviticus, how can sinful and impure people live with a holy God? That's the question at the heart of this book. It's actually kind of the question at the heart of the Bible. And that's a question that really matters if you're a Christian. It's also actually a question that really matters if you're not a Christian. Maybe just looking in, you're kind of exploring the Christian faith. Well, this question really matters for you too. Because if the Bible is right, that there's a God who made you and who loves you and who wants you to find the very best life you can, to enjoy fullness of life through relationship with him, then how you can have relationship with him is a really, really important question. And Leviticus is a key part of the Bible's answer to that question. And some of how we see that and some of how it does that is the part that Leviticus plays in the Bible's big story. The Bible is this collection of lots of different books, but all of them add together, work together to tell a particular story. We might think of Leviticus as being like this kind of volume of lists and lists of laws and a lawyer's shelf, but actually it's part of a library of a story joining together. And even the book itself has kind of a narrative, a story shape. It plays a part in the Bible's big story. So let's quickly look at that. The Bible's big story starts with creation, with God creating a perfect world, and humans, you and I, are created as the very pinnacle of that world. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, and we are designed to find fullness of life, to enjoy our very best life through a relationship with the God who made us. And all of us as humans have God-given deep longings for things like love and acceptance, identity, meaning, purpose, and all of those are designed to be ultimately fulfilled through a relationship with the God who made us. That's the plan, that's how things are designed to be, the start of the story, but very quickly things go wrong. Because we as humanity fail to trust God and instead we trust ourselves. We fail to go God's way, instead we go our own way, and in doing that we make ourselves imperfect. And because we become imperfect, it's what the Bible calls sin, that imperfection, we have to be separated from the God who is perfect. It's the third chapter of the Bible. Humanity, humans are sent away from the place where God dwells, sent away from the source of true life. Humans and God are separated. And yet the story could so easily have ended there. There was no obligation on God to make anything else happen. He'd given us everything we need, every chance we needed, and we had thrown away, and we were rightly suffering the consequences. There was no need for any more of the story except for there was a need, there was a reason. The reason is God's love. You see, God so loves us that he didn't want to, couldn't bear to abandon us to the mess that we had created. And so he sets out on a mission to reunite us to himself. And the Bible is the story of God's mission to do exactly that. And this mission starts in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, where God calls a guy called Abraham and his family. He promises that through Abraham and his kids and kids and kids and kids, all the generations, through that line, God is going to bless all people. And God is going to bring a reunion, a bringing back together of humans and God. The story continues in the next book, in Exodus, where Abraham does have lots of kids. There is this big nation, but they're becoming enslaved in Egypt. But in the book of Exodus, the Prince of Egypt story, God raises up a guy called Moses to be a leader, to lead the people out of slavery, to form them as God's people on the way to their own place where they're going to live with God. 
And here's the important bit. As they start to journey out as the people of God, ready to go to the place where they're going to live with him, they make tents. They live in a camp in the desert, all in their own little tents. And then God tells them to build a tent for him. God himself is going to have his tent right in the middle of the camp of all of the Israelites. God himself, the source of true life, the source of fullness of life, the roots eggs growing our best life, is going to live in the middle of this people, and they are going to get to be in relationship with him again. It's back to plan A, it was always meant to be. But of course, there's a really important question at this point, because God is still perfect. And the Israelites, like all of us, are still very imperfect. How can the perfect God and the imperfect people live together? Nothing unclean or impure can draw near to where God is. It's like having a room at the heart of your house, which is perfectly sterile and pure and clean, and everything around it is unclean and impure, and nothing can go into it because it will make it impure. Nothing can draw near to it. How can the perfect God live in the midst of such an imperfect people? Well, that's where Leviticus comes in. That's what it's doing in the Bible's story. It's all about how God and people can live together an imperfect people, and a perfect God. And you can actually see that this is what this book is doing by looking either side of it. So the first few books of the Bible, they kind of flow into each other telling one story. And just before Leviticus, in Exodus, this tent has been built. They're ready for God himself to come and live among them. And at the very end, chapter 40 of Exodus, God comes and dwells in the tent. But because God's in the tent, now Moses and the people can't go into the tent. There's a problem, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud, that's representing God, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled in it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's there, God and people together again, but people can't go in. There's still a separation. And that's how Leviticus starts, because Leviticus starts with God speaking to Moses, but God's inside and Moses is stuck outside. Leviticus 1.1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, out of the tent of meeting. But then if you skip over this book, you go to the very next thing that happens in the Bible, the very beginning of the next book, Numbers 1.1, God again speaks to Moses, but this time Moses is in the tent. Numbers 1.1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. Not from, not out of the tent, in the tent. Moses has gone in, and that might seem like a really small thing. Andrew, why are you so excited? A guy's walked through some flaps in a tent and walked in. But this is a big deal. This is, Moses going in the tent means that God and humans are living in intimate relationship again. Moses walking into that tent is like humans walking back into the Garden of Eden, back into the place we're always meant to be to dwell in life-giving relationship with God. And of course, Moses here is the leader of the people. He's representing the people. For Moses to go in and be with God is to say this people has an intimate relationship with God once again. What's happened between the end of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers to make that possible? The book of Leviticus. How can imperfect people live with a perfect God? It's all in Leviticus. And so the big question that Leviticus is answering is how can imperfect people live with a perfect God? And the key message this book tells us is that God wants us. God wants us to live in intimate relationship with him. God wants us to dwell with him. And I think you see that in that very first verse we've already read. Start of Leviticus, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. 
Almost all of Leviticus is God talking, and it's God talking about how can people dwell with him. And notice, God starts the conversation. It's not Moses. It's not the Israelites. They don't plea and beg or try to convince him or wear him down or try to earn it by doing good good stuff. God starts the conversation because God wants them to dwell with them. God is a God who wants us to dwell in intimate relationship with him, and so he takes the initiative to do that. We'll see as we go through this book, one of the wonderful things Leviticus can do is reveal to us what the heart of God is like. And there are so many misconceptions, aren't there? And even we find it easy to believe misconceptions of what God's heart is really like. This book is going to help us to see what God's heart is really like. And one of the key things it shows us is God wants us. God wants you. He wants relationship with you. We so easily think of God as a a harsh taskmaster or a a mean headmaster or a hard slave owner. Leviticus reveals his true heart is as a loving creator who longs for us to thrive and to flourish through relationship with him. God wants us to enjoy our best life by being in relationship with him. We can see something of the, the message of Leviticus and the way it plays a part in the Bible's big story. We can also see it in this story of Leviticus itself. And if you know the book at all, it might seem really odd to talk about Leviticus as a story. Because actually, there's only two little sections that are story, narrative, and the way we tend to think of it. But the whole of this book has like a shape to it, a narrative story shape, which helps us see this message. And actually, that's what we're going to explore in this series. So the series design that can come up behind us, the Day of Atonement slide, thanks, Dan, kind of shows us that. You can see there's a pyramid here of these icons. Each one's representing one of the preachers we're going to look at and the journey, the story that Leviticus takes us through. So the top of the pyramid there, you can see the two goats. This is about the Day of Atonement. The very middle of this book, potentially the middle of the whole first five books of the Bible, is a special day called the Day of Atonement. It was a day when once a year the people acknowledged their imperfections acknowledged before God their sins, and they engaged in rituals commanded by God and trusted in the promise of God to deal with their imperfection. And God's promise to cleanse them and to forgive them for their imperfections so that they can live in relationship with him. And at the center of this day, as we're seeing a few weeks' time, was a moment when the high priest, who's a guy who represents all of the people, He goes into the tent. He goes right into the heart of God's tent, to the very place, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. And it's this picture of God and humanity being in intimate relationship. The heart of Leviticus is all about God and humans being reunited. And on that ceremony, or that day, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, there are two goats involved, hence the two goats on the design. And then you'll see there's a journey up the pyramid to that point, and there's a journey down the pyramid to that point. The journey up... It's all about how we get to that day. How can imperfect people and a perfect God dwell together on that day? And the journey up is all about the provision that God makes for that. The first half of Leviticus is the provisions God gives for that. So the first one we'll look at, the altar there with the goat's head, we're going to talk next week about sacrifices. The way the instructions God gives people for how they're to worship him and how they can deal with their imperfections so they can draw near to him. We'll look at what they are and why they're there, what we can learn from them. And then the next one up in the pyramid there is the purity. Because, see, to draw near to a perfect God, you've got to be pure and clean and perfect. And this is where we get all the stuff we find particularly weird in the risk. All the stuff about skin diseases. 
hence the guy with boils, all the stuff about clean and unclean animals, what you can and can't eat. And the whole concept going on here is you've got to be pure and clean to draw near to the perfect God. And actually, all these things that we'll see were meant to illustrate to them, the external stuff was meant to illustrate the need for an internal perfection. The external perfection and cleanliness needed was all about actually the heart and how we live and how our heart is before God needing holiness. And we'll see that as we look on that week. So the journey up is God wants you and he wants you to be able to draw near to him. And you get the day when God and humans dwell together, the day of atonement. And then you get a journey back down. And the journey back down is what happens when God and humans do dwell together. When you've got to that point, what kind of flows from there? What happens as the result? And so first, we're going to look at holy living. We've got some stone tablets there representing the laws God gives. But there's a section of laws, but these laws aren't kind of, you know, jump through these hoops and impress me. And they're not kind of jump through these hoops to earn something from me. These laws are become like God. You see, as you dwell with God, you are changed and transformed to become like him. We become the kind of people we were always designed to be. So we'll look at the laws in Leviticus 18 to 20, which are all about how do you become like God as you dwell near him and dwell with him. And the final step in the pyramid, again, things that flow from being with God are the blessings and curses that flow from living with God. Where Leviticus talks about obedience to God's law, bringing blessing, disobedience bringing uh, kind of curses or consequences. And we'll talk about how in Jesus we receive all the blessings of God. So the journey down the pyramid in Leviticus shows us God wants us, and he wants us to be transformed and to receive blessing as we live in relationship with him. That's the story of Leviticus and kind of the journey that we are going to go on. And you, of course, might be thinking at this point, well, that's great, Andrew, but this is all Old Testament stuff. We've got Jesus now. We live after Jesus. We live after the New Testament. We don't make sacrifices. We don't think the same way about skin diseases or unclean animals. We don't perform these rituals in the Day of Atonement. We're not under the curses of God. We receive the blessings of God. And actually, that's all completely true. We need to remember, as always in the Old Testament, we are in a different part of God's story. We need to read this book in light of what comes afterwards through kind of the lens of Jesus helping us to understand it. But we will find that the principles and the lessons and the message of Leviticus are still hugely relevant to us today, even if their kind of outworking might look a bit different. And that message of Leviticus, the truth that God wants us, is really the message of the whole Bible. Both Leviticus and the Bible as a whole show us that God wants us, God wants you. And of course, the place that's supremely revealed is in Jesus. In the sending of God's Son, why does he come? Why does God send his Son? It's because God wants us. God wants you. In Leviticus, God takes the initiative so that imperfect Israel can draw near to the perfect God. In Jesus, God takes the initiative so that all of us, as imperfect people, can draw near to the perfect God. In a sense, you could say what God does through Leviticus in the Old Testament he does through Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus brings to completion what God starts in Leviticus. He fulfills Leviticus. He gives kind of the full substance to the shadows that we see in Leviticus. And so we're going to see time and time again that it's not hard to find Jesus in Leviticus. Maybe at this point I can have a band or a musician or someone up, please. 
So, Leviticus, really? Are we really going there? Well, friends, we are, and I'm thoroughly convinced that as we do so, we're going to find wonderful, life-giving gospel truth. This whole book is this whole thing of how imperfect people, just like you and I, can dwell with the perfect God who made us and loves us and wants us to find relationship with him. The message is God wants you. Let that just settle into your hearts today. And of course, for us today, wonderfully, that relationship is made open and available through Jesus. His death and his resurrection, and we're going to see time and again that Leviticus is going to help us to understand that point. And we're going to respond this morning just to that simple, wonderful truth that God wants us by taking the bread and wine together. This thing that Jesus commands us to do. We take the bread, remembering Jesus' body broken for us. The wine, remembering his blood poured out for us. The clear, uh, decisive demonstration of God's desire for us to be in relationship with him. Him taking the initiative. As we do this, it's a chance for us to remind ourselves of that truth and to ask the Spirit to remind us that God wants us. Maybe today you just need to hear that affirmation from God direct to your heart that he loves and he wants you. It's a chance for us to thank him for making a way for us to be in relationship with him. And it's also a chance for us to pick up on Dave's word and for us and for the people around us who we long to see coming enter into this life-giving relationship, the, the breaking out of the goodness of the gospel into the community around us. It's a chance for us to pray that that would happen as well. If you're not a Christian here today, we'd encourage you not to take this. This doesn't mean anything to you. And if you are a Christian, the Bible tells us to examine our hearts before we take the bread and wine. You might want to pause, do some business with God. You may feel you need to repent of some things before you come and take this bread and wine. Why don't we take the opportunity, since we can, to do this with others? Do be sensitive to COVID stuff and what people feel comfortable with. It's okay to ask. Do you want me to leave a seat or do you want me to move up? That's okay to ask. And just pray with each other and take the bread and wine. Let me just pray. And then we'll do that. The guys might just kind of play in the background and might lead us to a song, whatever you feel is best at the time, guys. Father God, we thank you so much that you want us. That even this book in the Bible that may seem so odd and obscure to us, we may often not know what to do with it, actually is there because you love us and you want us. And I pray right now by your spirit, would you please affirm that truth deep into our hearts? Would we know it? Lord God, would we feel it? Would we know that we are loved? that we are wanted, that you desire us, and that you are the place that true life is found. And now, Lord, as we take the bread and the wine, as we remember the sacrifice of your son for us, the way that you've made open for us to be in relationship with you, we pray, Lord, let that truth go deep into our hearts and let us come with thanksgiving, with worship, with gratitude. And Lord, with a desire to see many, many more people come and experience the life-giving relationship that we had the pleasure to enjoy. Spirit, we just invite you and we ask you to move amongst us as we now take the bread and wine together.